Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and if you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes of the show, please go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can also contact us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. Uh, now, as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney, from the Irish Story website. And just thinking back, looking at the website, John, sometimes we're going back um, three or four years listening to different episodes and three or four years in the future if we're listening to this because we're recording this on the 28th of March. The lockdown has started really last night, or this morning, I think. Uh, we're in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. So it's going to be interesting because it's it's a really bizarre period in Irish and world history. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously not the first pandemic in world history. Uh, it, it's the first pandemic with modern uh, communications technology, though, where every beat is reported every second. So that that's certainly new, yeah. Well, we're trying something different today. This is the first time we've not been in the same room recording a podcast. We're doing this over the internet using the new modern technology. So we're trying to get the hang of the technology and the audio. So bear with us. So uh, hopefully it goes okay. But today we were going to discuss an interesting event in Irish history, and that was the collapse of the fifth doll. It was the shortest doll in Irish history. It only lasted 98 days, and it made one individual TD very famous, not just in Ireland, but internationally, someone called John Jinx from Sligo and a member of the now long defunct uh, National League party. Yeah, and just before we, we, we delve into the events of 1927, I mean, had it not been for the pandemic, this would be very topical because just like now, um, we we have effectively a hung doll. We did, it was very difficult to form a government after that election. And that's why th- this whole crisis in 1927 happened. Had we not been struck down by events, that's not the not the wrong uh, choice of words, then we'd be probably be talking a lot more about 1927 right now. Yeah, like um, one of the things we could be doing is looking at another election this year, if there was continued failure to of the doll to elect a new government, but that's obviously not going to happen in a new election and having people going to the polls. Not for the time being, anyway. I mean, that may well happen later in the year, I suspect. To put this into context, the fourth doll was elected in 1923, just as the Civil War was winding up. That's right. It, it was a very momentous time, obviously, in Irish history. It's at the end of what we call now the Irish Revolutionary Period. And it all obviously came to a very sorry end with the Civil War. In 1923, one thing that you see when you, you delve into the period is that, you know, where is a history book, a textbook say will say, well, the Civil War ended in, in May 30th, 1923 with the IRA's dump arms order. But the reality is not like that at all, because whereas the IRA ceases their operations, the anti-treaty IRA, you know, the government passes another public safety act, which is effectively, you know, martial law. In the summer of 1923, they keep over 10,000 prisoners interned and they keep on with arrests and raids and and so on. And there's still an army of 50 odd thousand garrisoning the country. So it's a very abnormal situation. And this first election, which is called for August 1923, where you have effectively the losing faction of the Civil War organizing um, under the label Republicans. They're not calling themselves Sinn Féin at this point. And many of their activists are in jail, or uh, a lot of their people they put forward as TDs are are in jail. Quite a lot of them get arrested. I mean, the army at this point is not what it later became. Like, it's not an apolitical army. 
it's I recently was reading the military intelligence reports from 1923-24 and they say things like um, we have a want of canvassers in our area and the irregular propaganda is doing a lot of harm so that the army very um, very openly identifies with with the ruling party coming in nail which is the pro-treaty party which is organized for the first time to, to fight this election yes and there's a lot of complaints from republicans that their canvassers are being harassed that their candidates and their meetings are being harassed and it's a very very odd period to have a general election in which both sides of a civil war a recently fought bitter civil war are now contesting a general election against each other it's a very strange period of course i mean like just for example like sean lamas who's later the taoiseach of ireland and a very uh, well-regarded taoiseach is briefly let out of jail at this period uh, because his brother's remains were found his brother noel was an anti-treaty uh, ira activist and he, he was abducted before just before the election in the summer of 23 and his body was actually found in, in um, october i think if i remember correctly and, and lamas is briefly let out of jail to go to his funeral you know he was abducted and, and killed by state forces probably by an army intelligence officer called james murray although that's never really been established but this is the kind of period that there is that is going on you have wholesale arrests under what is effectively martial law you still have killings being carried out you have a very lawless situation so like the ira order goes out to dump arms and most of them do but a lot of them who are wanted who are on the run don't because they know if they go home they'll be arrested and they're still going around and they're raiding people's houses for food and supplies and so on like that what the government sees as brigandage it's it's really a very unstable situation and i mean the miracle in a way is that they managed to actually have a peaceful election and as far as we know a, a pretty fair election because you know the anti-treatyites actually did quite well like their vote more than doubled from what it had been in 1922. yes and some of the areas where the civil war was fought most bitterly the anti-treaty vote goes up absolutely i mean and that's more than likely a direct result of the civil war and the bitterness that that engendered particularly particularly in places like kerry but also in, in mayo and sligo places like that well that's one of the things with the fourth doll once the civil war is out of the way the coming the nail government really has to get their heads around state building and actually absolutely. laying down the foundation of a of a of a functioning state absolutely and i mean one thing like we think of the civil war period as you know pro-treaty and anti-treaty, you know, and uh, in popular conception, De Valera and Collins and so on. But I mean, in terms of, like you said, state building and the, the very basics of it, another important dimension to it is the kind of social dimension. So like the international background is that there's a big slump, uh, economic slump um, from 1922 onwards, from late 21 onwards, really. And uh, the farmers who are the biggest employers in the country are desperately trying to cut the wages of their laborers, which had crept up over the years of the First World War. And, and there's... Parallel with the Civil War, there's all these bitter strikes all over the country, mostly of agricultural workers. And they do things like they seize creameries and they they put up the red flag over them and so on. And for my money, these aren't attempts at revolution. They're, they're strikes for, for wage or stopping wage um, cuts. But because it's the Civil War, everybody is armed. In some cases, um, the local guerrillas take the side of the strikers. And there's shots fired at quite a lot of strikes, um, particularly in uh, County Waterford. Like There's several battalions of troops sent down to suppress the farm workers' strike there, which is based in, in and around Kilmacthomas, uh, west of Waterford City. And, and there's really violent, like there's there's houses burnt down, uh, there's shots fired, there's people killed, there's a lot of people arrested. And also around the country, there's part of the army is kind of peeled off and it's made into what's called the Special Infantry Corps, which is effectively uh, gendarmerie. Position had been taken that the Civic Guard, what's now called the Guardi, the police force, would not be armed. So a part of the army was peeled off and they were given the job of basically armed police and most of what they were doing was reversing land occupations where people had grabbed land 
during the turmoil of, of the Civil War and the War of Independence. But they were also breaking up strikes. They were basically doing armed policing, and, and that was still the case it, it, during the election of 1923. It also, I think, coloured the attitudes of, of Cumbin and Nail and the kind of establishment, the government, emerging government establishment, where they saw the state as very precarious. They saw it as depending on forces of order, forces of property, the people who were going to pay taxes. And it really encouraged their drift in a very conservative direction. Yes, very much so. And and uh, I think it was O'Higgins said that they were the most conservative bunch of revolutionaries that ever came to power. Yeah, I mean, you know, that I, that quote is a bit overused, though, isn't it? I mean, everybody quotes up uh, Kevin O'Higgins, where it's like, I think it's to a greater degree, I think it, it's a factor more of, of um, situation a lot of them found themselves in. For example, W.T. Cosgrave, for example, was a Sinn Féiner going back to the days of Arthur Griffith's Sinn Féin. And, you know, in his early days on the Dublin Corporation in the 1910s, he'd done a lot of work on social housing and trying to get an improvement in the tenements back then. And, you know, whereas the Free State Government does a little bit of that, they build a good housing project at Marino, for example, as Ronan McCord has written for the Irish story. They don't do that much of it because they, they you know, they think the state is bankrupt and, and uh, solvency is the important thing. Also, I look at the likes of Ernest Blythe, and Ernest Blythe is remembered as being the finance minister who drastically cut public spending um, after the Civil War, and including cutting the old age pension and so on, became a very conservative and a very right-wing figure. But one thing that surprised me about the earlier Ernest Blythe, you know, going back to his days in the IRB, in the, again, the 1910s, he's writing for their newspaper, Irish Freedom, and he's saying, you know, the only future for humanity is socialism. I swear to God, he wrote that. And he, yeah. yeah, he signed it. Ernan, yeah, he signed it. Ernan de Blythe, you know, his Irish language name. Now, the point I'm making here is that the treaty split was kind of a, you know, it was a contingent event. People took sides for all kinds of reasons based on just what they thought of the treaty, based on who they were close to personally. But the people whose job it was or who took on the role of establishing the new state did emerge from especially the Civil War period with this very conservative idea of what the state should look like. The state's in danger. The state has to be solvent. It can't uh, spend too much money. And also a lot of them emerged particularly from the Civil War period with the idea that the people were unreliable. The people were kind of worthy of freedom, actually. A, a lot of them thought um, the people were irregulars. And this term irregulars was used, obviously, for the anti-treaty Republicans. In government correspondence, people like O'Higgins would write of passive irregularism. So it didn't just mean, you know, guerrillas. It meant people who weren't paying their rates, their taxes, uh, people who were trying to default on debts. And, and the army was often sent in to collect these in, in 1923. Whether it was to do with the background that they came from, in some cases, yes, but I think really to do with their experience of the Civil War, they certainly emerged from it as a very conservative group. Well, that's the thing. When you read some of those reports and from the likes of O'Higgins and they're complaining about anarchism and people uh, stealing cars to go off on joyriding and a lack of respect for order in society. It is very conservative and like the heavy hand of the state will have to come down to um, re-establish order after the revolutionary period. Uh -huh, absolutely. And the other thing to, to remember is that like in terms of uh, Irish republicanism or nationalism, there was a lot of that in the pro-treaty side in 1922. But many of those people who were, let's say, most committed to the kind of militant version of Irish republicanism in terms of uniting Ireland and using force to do so. Um, a lot of them were, were in the army, but a lot of them left or were kicked out because of the army mutiny of 1924. So they resisted demobilization, partly in their self-interest because they didn't want to lose their, their jobs in, as officers in the army, but also partly because they said, we signed up for the treaty only to get a fully free Ireland and we don't think that's, that's going to happen now. So a lot of them under Joe McGrath actually left the, the pro-treaty party 
1924 and went off on their own. And that also changed the character of the coming in nail establishment. Well, that's true. Like there was, what, eight or nine TDs McGrath took with them. Yeah, and, and quite a lot of activists on the ground too. Like, and, and as you say, it does change the character of coming the nail. Like it becomes a more conservative governing party. Absolutely. Uh, I think it certainly is that by the, by the mid-1920s, without question. Yeah, so that type of stepping stone republicanism that Collins advocated and was one of the things, one of the, the points that the treaty was sold on, that this is just carrying on the struggle in a different way, in a constitutional way. It's accepting this settlement for the time being until we can push forward in a different non-military way to the same objectives. That sort of goes by the wayside. Yeah, that's not looking so good after 1924. And most of the people who, who believe that, or many of them, had left the party by that by left coming the nail. I mean, now, having said that, I mean there would have been a lot of people who um, subscribed to that line of thinking in the army still. But people like um, Hugo McNeil, people like Ona Duffy, who's the guard commissioner, would in, in theory have subscribed still to that line of thinking. So they're not totally gone, but it's much less. It's probably less important than the kind of residual Redmondite thing that begins to be important in coming the nail as well. And also former unionists too. That's absolutely. I mean, yeah, John Regan is very interesting on this. He, he says. Um, or he notes that coming and Nail started to get funding from former Unionists in, in Southern Ireland quite quite soon after the, the end of the Civil War period. Yes, and I suppose, apart from coming and Nail, the actual state itself was dependent on a lot of the wealthier industrialists and banking and financial sector that would have been mainly populated by Unionists at the time, getting behind the new state financially. That's quite right, and Britain itself. You know, there's still quite, yeah. a, quite a lot of... A large amount of loans and someone from Britain itself. Well, as we we're talking there about the Fort Hall and some of the problems that they faced, like the Army Mutiny being a big one, I suppose one of the big catalysts for disaffection with Cumming and Ale and their drop in support at the 1927 election, the one that we're going to talk about now, the fifth doll that lasted so short, was the Boundary Commission. And that's a a real problem for coming in ale. Yeah, I mean, you know, like there, there's a number of things which kind of come together. Like, uh, you know, there's the social question. I mean, like there's fears of famine in, in the West of Ireland in 1924. Like the situation is really quite serious. And some of that is the result of the Civil War has kind of disrupted, uh, you know, food supply and so on like that. But another thing is that the wages are so low, have uh, gone so low because of the, the slump in, in agricultural prices. You know, so there's a lot of social discontent in a place like Dublin and also, you know, Waterford, Cork, but, but especially Dublin. You know, the housing situation is really, really bad and had been, you know, for a long time. But I mean, that's that's a pool of discontent that's always going to be there until it's sorted out. But yeah, in terms of the national question, yeah, the, the Boundary Commission was, you know, Collins, for example, was very strident that the under the treaty partition could be undone. So like the, what the Article 12 of the treaty says is that the border can be redrawn in accordance with the wishes of the inhabitants. But the problem with that is that it says that this is subject to economic and geographic conditions. And the people who were on the Boundary Commission were two British representatives and one Irish, Owen McNeil. And they very much took the uh, position that their job was just to basically confirm the border, maybe fiddle with the border a little bit, but but not to redraw it. Well, the way the Boundary Commission was sold at the time during the treaty debate and the perception, even during um, 1920 and 21, when we're looking at like local elections in the north, and uh, 1921 election, what would be the second doll, but it's also the election for the first Northern Ireland 
government in Stormont, the first Northern Ireland Parliament, is the talk is that we have to have as strong a vote as possible. Both sides are saying this, unionists and nationalists, but we have to have as strong a, a possible vote in uh, border areas that every area has to have a strong nationalist vote to show that when this boundary commission meets or when the border will eventually be re redrawn, that we will go with the South. And the perception being that South Down, South Armagh, all of Fermanagh and Tyrone, maybe parts of South County Derry and Derry City will be transferred to Dublin control. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, Cormac Moore actually is interesting on this. I, I, it's in his book, you know, um, the birth of the border, but also in conversation, Cormac argues that, like, whereas Northern Ireland was on the books, all right, in the Government of Ireland Act, Lloyd George especially acknowledged our position is not strong with regards to places that, such as Fermanagh and Tyrone, that wanted to be part of the Free State. And he said our, our position, the Unionists want them as Northern, in part of Northern Ireland, but, you know, it's very difficult to argue that places with a nationalist majority should be in it. And, and likewise, Derry City, I mean, the corporation of Derry City was taken over by nationalists, by an alliance of Sinn Féiners and, and others in 1920. And, and that's Northern Ireland's second city. The unionists are determined not to use it, not to lose it, but it actually has a nationalist majority. So, you know, had the border been redrawn, as the first part of Article 12 of the treaty says, in accordance with the wishes of the population, Northern Ireland would have been more than halved in terms of its area. Yeah, and would it have been viable then in that, in that state? Yeah, I mean, that, that's always the argument. I mean, thinking about this, I wonder what, I do wonder what people mean a little bit by would it have been viable? I mean, in a, in a way, why wouldn't it? I mean, like the, power, the economic powerhouse of Northern Ireland was always the east of the province and most of the population lived there too. So would it have actually affected, I mean, the economy of Northern Ireland? I don't know. Well, it would have been more like an enclave than, than like a state though, I suppose. Would it have been viable um, as a devolved self-governing area? It could have been viable as under direct control to remain part of the union yeah sure why not but like having the level of control that stormont had over the six counties for 50 years would that really have been possible in uh, such a, a narrow area it would have been a lot more homogenous as yeah. a statelet i mean it's, it's from a security point of view i suppose it would have been very vulnerable as well i mean it would have been kind of really encircled by you know hostile territory if you like yeah i mean but you know who, who's to say i mean so, I think it's suffice to say that in in 1924-25 people expected uh, the border to be withdrawn redrawn substantially and and they were kind of shocked when it came out that it wasn't going to be well this is the thing that the expectation with the treaty was that the boundary commission would meet as soon as possible but because the civil war doesn't meet until late 1924 and owen mcneil is appointed by the doll as the free state representative and initially the Northern Ireland government just ignores it. They don't want to have anything to do with it. And a representative is appointed on their behalf. And it meets for meets for a good few months and almost a year before the London Morning Post sensationally published the findings of the commission in November 1925. To everyone in the South's consternation, the Free State was only going to gain some very small areas of Fermanagh and Armagh, yeah. and the Northern Ireland government was going to, going to gain a portion of Eastern Donegal. That's right, uh, including Kilkenny, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, a place like St. Johnson and a place that would have like um, large unionist communities, and also parts of Monaghan as well. Um, yeah. A place like Drum and stuff like that, that would have had like very heavy 
Protestant community. So, um, and and I mean, we shouldn't. Um, I suppose we shouldn't get too diverted and talk talk too much about the, the northern question. But I mean, like, it is also the case that in the meantime, the northern government had been busy gerrymandering all the all the local government bodies that nationalists had won back in nineteen twenty, so that they were going to have unionist representatives, no matter what the majority was like. Yeah, a lot of the county councils had been abolished and taken under uh, direct control. The ones that continued their allegiance to the doll, and um, it was a question for nationalist-controlled areas. I think at that time, is that do we continue to um, give allegiance to the doll and see ourselves abolished, or try and work with Stormont for the time being and see how things could go? It was a very um, bleak period for political nationalism. Completely. But moving again to the south of the border, though, I mean, uh, how do you think this affected Cumann and Ailes kind of uh, legitimacy as a, a nationalist party? Well, it was one of the main points that the treaty was sold on, that this was a way to a way to deal with the partition situation. And it makes them look very weak, that they've, they've got very little uh, from this process. And uh, Owen McNeil resigns, resigns from the, the cabinet as well. And he had also been uh, a TD. He was a, an ordinary, he was from Antrim, but he'd been a TD for Derry City too. Cosgrave goes over to London a couple of days after the report appears in the, the newspapers. And with the British Prime Minister at the time, it was Stanley Baldwin. And um, there's another delegation then, goes over a few days later from, from Dublin. So they, they really need something from Brit, something that they can take back. And they appear to have got very, very little. Well, uh, what they got was um, they, they dropped their the Free State's obligation to pay part of the Imperial War debt from the First World War. And and in response, the, uh, the Boundary Commission was going to be buried altogether. Yes, but they were still on the hook for the land annuities and the fig leaf mm -hmm. of the Council of Ireland that would eventually be re revived in in theory with Sunningdale that's all their powers are transferred to uh, the Northern Ireland government in Stormont. But the upshot I suppose though is that like you know it can be argued and, and was argued certainly by anti-treaty Republicans that the uh, Free State had sold out Northern Nationalists for a little bit of money. Yeah well and this puts a lot of pressure on um, Sinn Féin like what are they going to do and how useful is it to continue abstentionism yeah, like like let's let's back, let's back up a little bit and talk about um, the anti-treaty uh, political response to the aftermath of the civil war, because like they they, they contest the election in 1923 as Republicans. They don't. It's kind of an informal uh, coalition, uh, but it's very much based on the IRA and coming to man. And then like they regroup in Sinn Féin, which is I think it's fair to say effectively refounded in in late 1923. But they hold a position of abstentionism, which is that they don't recognise the free state or Northern Ireland, but predominantly they're concerned about the free state. They don't recognize the free state and they're meeting actually in their own parliament, uh, if elected, called the, which they call Kawarlan the Jagti, which they say is a continuation of the second bill. So it's a very fundamentalist position they hold uh, in the post-Civil War period. Yes, and we see that continue on really up until uh, the mid-80s when Sinn Féin, provisional Sinn Féin, a large section of them, agree to recognise Leinster House and uh, go into take their seats if elected to the doll. Sorry, no, but there is a difference, though, between um, the early abstentionism and, and, and after the Civil War and later stuff, because the pretension of the anti-treaty Republicans was that the second doll was still in session, you know, yeah. and, that they, and that they were still the government. Like, Eamon de Valera was still being named as the, the president of the Republic, and 
uh, the anti-treaty TDs assembled in, in an assembly called Kawarla Nachakti, and uh, they had ministers and so on. You know, they were still acting like as if they were an alternative government, you know, almost if it was as if it was back in the War of Independence. Well, the belief being that the, the, the second all hadn't been formally and properly uh, wound down. Yeah, and there's all kinds of legalistic arguments, but I mean, effectively what it boils down to is they won't recognise or participate in the free state institutions. Yes, that while the, the free state government might be the de facto government, they're not the de jure government. That's right. And he, yeah, and even De Valera is arguing that right up until he gets elected himself in 1932. But the other thing, I suppose, though, is that the anti-treatyites begin to adopt something of a social platform in, in this period, I think it's fair to say. Yes, and if we look at where the anti-treatyites were getting most of their support, they are getting it along the western seaboard in areas and counties where emigration and unemployment are the strongest and there's an awful lot of poverty really desperate poverty in ireland in that in that time yeah i mean like in, in dublin you don't see that initially like for example in the civil war contrary to what pe some people think nowadays there isn't really a class basis to the civil war in dublin you know it isn't the case that working class areas supported the anti-treatyites but what, what you do see happen is the anti-treatyites during and after the civil war start to think well how do you build popular support against the government which you're, you're opposed? And, and they, they say, well, you know, people are dissatisfied because they don't have housing, they don't have jobs, and, and we should be saying we'll give it to them. You know, and during the civil war, like there's there's all kinds of talk about adopting the program of the Communist Party, which is about nationalizing industry and nationalizing land and stuff. And while they don't do anything like that, it does influence their line of thinking. Yeah, you have people like Liam Mellows who are recognizing that one of the ways to build support for the anti-treaty position is to adopt a social platform absolutely and i mean if you look at what they're arguing by the the late 20s it's very much like you know yes we're going to re-establish the republic and we're going to tear down the treaty but it's also you know the the free state doesn't give you jobs the free state only cares about big business and big farmers they don't care about small farmers they don't care about the laborers they don't care about the workers you know this, this becomes part of the anti-treaty message and it might surprise people to know that the ancestors of Fianna Fáil talked about talked like that one time but but they did yeah and i think that the optics as well with coming in now, especially things like going to imperial conferences and the way ministers will present themselves in public at events. The idea of like the, the silk top hats, they lent themselves to being tacked in this manner in some ways, perhaps unfairly, but like as you mentioned before with Ernest Blythe and putting the shilling off the old age pension, you still have a, a lot of emigration during the 1920s too. Yeah, I mean, you know, you do, you really do have a lot of modern analogies here because coming to nail is an austerity government in the 1920s. And it's it's partly it's economic, but it's also like uh, military, you could say. Like, I mean, they have to, the, the state basically created an enormous debt to cr create a big army to put down the anti-treatyites during the Civil War period. And they were living with that debt. And I mean, also, they took on lots of debts under the treaty. I mean, they took... It took on a debt for compensation that to pay the pensions of all the functionaries of the, the British state in Ireland, including the police, the RIC, and they took on part of the war debt. Okay, that was that was shelved, but they had the land annuities they had to pay back for the land war and so on. So they had another like land act too. And they had that's correct, exactly. They had another land act where they bought out uh, compulsorily bought out a, a lot of landlords, um, and that that did something actually to uh, shore up their support among like middling farmers. But the the point is that they they said well and. Unless we drastically cut spending, the state's going to go bankrupt. And they were quite ruthless in their attitude. Like, you, you know, they, there was even quotes like, people may have to die of starvation just to get the state off the ground, which, you know, there, there, there is very much this attitude. Austerity comes first, the survival of the state comes first, the welfare of the, the citizens comes second. And th this was certainly the perception.
if we can look at the reaction then to the agreement between Dublin and London following the Boundary Commission, look at the pressure that was brought to bear on Sinn Féin, that if they were to enter it at all and vote against the agreement, perhaps it could have come down. And there is a unity among the different opposition parties led by the Labour Party that in opposition to the agreement following the Boundary Commission. So even somebody like Austin Stack, who's one of the staunchest abstention of TDs, is writing to De Valera about perhaps we could go in and just to vote against the agreement. But they don't. But they don't. Thomas Johnson, who's the leader of the Labour Party, on the 7th of December, he invites all elected TDs, whether they're taking their seats or not in the doll, to a meeting in the Shelbourne Hotel to try and find some way to block the agreement. And um, De Valera attends and he said, um, I welcome the opportunity which I hope the meeting will afford of reuniting the people of all parties throughout the country in effective opposition to the partitioning of our motherland. So where did they go from there, really? Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, the key figure here, again, is Eamon De Valera, because uh, De Valera's big mistake, I think, he thought in the Civil War period was that he allowed himself to be sidelined. He wasn't the one making the decisions on the anti-treaty side. You know, he was basically subservient. He was an advisor to Liam Lynch. And he never wanted to be in that situation again. And quite quickly, I mean, De Valera said all kinds of things about he'd never enter the doll and he'd never take the oath and so on. But he, he's very he's a practical man, De Valera. He wants to get in the doll. He wants to hold the levers of power. So he, he quickly moves towards the trying to end abstentionism, first of all, in Sinn Féin. But that doesn't quite succeed, does it? There was a lot of tension between the IRA and Sinn Féin at the time, and with the IRA even severing its connection with Sinn Féin, when Frank Aiken had been proposing perhaps that the party could enter the Dáil at some stage. So in January 1926, De Valera announced that he would favour entering the Dáil if he wasn't required to take the oath. And this leads to a extraordinary general meeting of Sinn Féin in March, 9th of March, where he proposed that once the admission oaths of the 26 and 6 county assemblies are removed, it becomes a question not of principle but of policy whether or not Republican representatives should attend those assemblies. So that motion was defeated and it was a very close vote. It was 179 votes against 177 in favour and 85 abstentions. And after that, De Valera says, uh, I'm a free man from this moment. My duty as president is is over. I'm no, you know. And yeah. so... He takes his supporters, and then in May, he set, found uh, Fianna Fáil in the La Scala Theatre in Dublin. F Fianna Fáil, the Republican Party, I, I, yes. I should correct you. <laughs> yes, that's very interesting, a very interesting development, because while Fianna Fáil, the, this new party, have said they're open to entering the Dáil, they're still not making it explicit that they will enter the Dáil. Right, I mean, they're, they're going to contest elections, but it's not clear what they're going to do then. Yes, and Sinn Féin, the party that's De Valera and his supporters have, have left, that's still a party, and that's still contesting elections too. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that Sinn Féin like, dwindles so quickly almost into nothingness, though, uh, after this. I mean, it's led, interestingly enough, by Mary McSweeney. She must have been one of the very few female party leaders in Europe at the time. But, uh, yeah, it's like their position is too fundamentalist. They don't have... What Fianna Fáil uh, realised was that you had to have policies on a range of issues, you had to broaden your, your appeal beyond purist Republicans. And Sinn Féin of that era don't seem to have done that very well. No, I think the policy of Sinn Féin, even in the subsequent decades, that they would only enter the, 
at all if they got the majority of seats at a general election and only then to go in to abolish the the body you know it's not uh, um, so yeah. it's, it's very hard to it's very hard to win a general election on that point yeah and i mean you know they're, they're not they're generally not campaigning on anything else you know it's it's a single issue thing so their, their appeal is very limited and whereas as i said the Fianna Fáil branch of, of republicanism at the time learned and, la- and later and later iterations of Sinn Féin I should add learned that you had to campaign on, on a broad range of things you had to address people's concerns and all kinds of matters as well as just the national question well that's true and then we do have a general election then that comes a month after Fianna Fáil is founded on the 9th of June 1927 and that leads to this hung doll the fifth doll yeah. And just just to add though for the background i mean it's it's still not the case that the country has, has settled down into peaceful politics like there's there's kind of an ira resurgence at the time as well like uh, they they do a series of coordinated raids and guard barracks uh, in 20 in i think 1925 or 26 and, and there's two guard two guardy shot dead you know in, in coordinated raids like military really operations by the ira there's a number of shootings around the country like and, and of course they they hadn't at this point disavowed another round of the civil war. They they just had dumped arms for now. They never said we surrender or we were wrong. And the the Public Safety Act, the emergency legislation allowing for internment and execution, it is brought back every now and again. Like it's renewed in 1926, for example, after the shooting of Gardi. And as we're going to see, it's renewed again in 1927. So the background is is not of peaceful politics. It's it's still of potential political violence on a serious scale. It's less than four years since the civil war has ended. And less than three years since the prisoners were released. Yeah. At this this election in June of 1927, as we've said, it was a very in- inconclusive result. So Cumann and Ale are reduced to 46 seats. And Fianna Fáil, in their first time out, get 44 seats. So they're virtually neck and neck. But like they weren't the only two parties in the doll. Um, no Sinn Féin have five seats, but they are still abstaining from the dollar still and they aren't going to take their seats in the doll. But you have other groups like the Labour Party, farmers, a lot of independents and the National League. So there are different parties there and some of them are more pro treaty than others, but none of them as anti treaty to the same extent as or anywhere close to the same extent as Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin. Yeah, let's talk about those parties, though. So first of all, the Labour Party. The Labour Party did very well in the 1922 election, and, and its base at the time was mainly among uh, rural agricultural labourers. And while it lost a lot of the space, basically because um, they didn't really support the strike wave of 1923, when a lot of them were basically put down in, uh, by the army, it's, the Labour Party is still a, a very substantial party. And in areas that we might not associate with it, like it's not strongest in, in uh, urban areas, it's actually stronger in uh, rural areas with a lot of agricultural labourers. Yeah, and this this shows like the links between the Labour Party and the trade union movement at the time. They're very strong links. And uh, you can see there's an awful lot of those agricultural rural labourers were organised and brought into the ITG WU in that sort of First World War, post-First World War period. And you can see right up until 70s, 80s, and later on, that there are safe, solid Labour Party seats in places like Kerry, Tipperary, Kilkenny, Watford, Wicklow. Solid, solid, safe seats in Munster and South Leinster, all the way through the 20th century. Even when That's the right, yeah. Labour Party are, are at really low peaks, even when they're struggling to get um, a handful of TDs in Dublin. Yeah, and I mean, and the reality is, you know, there's 
thinking back to my my long lost days doing political science in, in UCD, I mean, you know, they talk about uh, when a cohort of the population is brought into politics, like given the vote, which agricultural laborers would have been in 1918, like not only the women, but also men. Like the, for 1918 was the first time most of them had got the vote. And so agricultural laborers were brought in at a time when they were first being brought into unions, into the ITGW, as you say, um, for, for better wages. So I think that that's very significant. And um, I also think it's interesting to look at the leadership of the Labour Party, because what you had was like trade unionists, really, the likes of Thomas Johnson, who was actually from, from Liverpool, like James Larkin. Larkin himself was not in the Labour Party at this time. He was uh, attempting to get some sort of communist project off the ground. They were mainly men, and they were almost all men, of like Fabian socialist views, you know, moderate socialist views. Their line on the treaty had been kind of conditional acceptance. During the Civil War, they'd formed a kind of a loyal opposition, like Republicans said they weren't against the government enough. They had also objected to a lot of the things the government did in the Civil War. They objected to military rule, they objected to executions and so on. So they probably were more sympathetic to to the anti-treaty side than to come in the nail by the mid to late 20s, I, I'd imagine. Yes, and it's particularly the um, economic policies that come in the nail were pursuing. Right, exactly. They had become associated in the public mind as the opposition yeah. since the state had been founded. And as we talk about like the other parties as well, for example, the Farmers' Party are almost in many ways an adjunct of coming a nail. Yes, and this goes back a little bit to the kind of class conflict uh, uh, that accompanied the Civil War, because like what you effectively had was in 1923, was you had farm labourers against farmers, and the state very much sided with the farmers. Why? Because it needed to re-establish law and order, it needed to put down these strikes, it needed to get people back to work, and it needed people gain, paying taxes, a lot of taxes, if the state wasn't going to, going to go bankrupt. So, yeah, the Farmers' Party is very much on this side of law and order, balance the books, and that puts them very much in the pro-treaty camp. So they can be depended on. They're not always going to be supporting the government, but if the government is in serious jeopardy, they can be depended on. And that brings us to the National League, which is a very interesting party. This led by uh, William Archer Redmond, who was the son of John Redmond, the most prominent... Yeah figure in Irish nationalism up until the revolutionary period. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure most of our listeners will know, but just to recap, I mean, before the First World War, the only party really in most of Ireland was the Irish Parliamentary Party, the IPP, or the Redmondites, after their leader, John Redmondton. As again, most of our listeners will know, this party was effectively sunk in the 1918 election, which in fame buried them. For example, Brian Hanley has made this point that, like, had we had PR back in 1918, the result wouldn't have been so strong. They still did have quite a substantial vote. So there were still quite a few voters in the country who were loyal, particularly to personalities like Redmond. There were voters who viewed the whole nationalist revolution as having been a mistake, that it could have been better handled by the IPP approach, the constitutional approach. And some of them would have seen their stance as being vindicated by the civil war and the bitterness that engendered. Yeah, and unfortunately for the uh, Irish Parliamentary Party, one of their strongest areas of support and their solid network of representation is what becomes Northern Ireland. Yeah, and where they become the, the main nationalist party until the, the 1970s, but that's cut off from obviously the free state and its politics. And uh, maybe that's the fact of partition and the, it sort of gives them almost a lift in Northern Ireland that keeps them going, keeps the party united. Within the South, and you do see this fragmentation in the early years of free state, there are a lot of niche parties and independents representing very specific things. Like there's there's even like um, old Donegal unionists organising and getting elected. There's 
you know, people representing very specific things. But the National League, it's sort of like a, a combination of old Redmond Knights. The Vintners also play a role in it as well, as they feel a bit aggrieved by the uh, newcomer and Ale government. Ex-Servicemen's Association sent to support the National League. So this type of support, and William Redmond um, has that solid Watford seat that he first gets in the by-election following his father's death in 1918, when there's a wave of uh, Sinn Féin victories before the 1918 and I mean, yes. election. Yeah, and it, so it's interesting. I mean, you know, you'd have, you'd have assumed that the Redmondites or, or their descendants would have been closer to the, the pro-treaty party. And, and in some ways they were, and some, some of them later on merged with, with Fine Gael. But there were actually, a lot of them, quite unhappy with the Cumming and Ale government in the, in the mid-1920s. Yes, and I suppose that type of resentment as well for, for decades the nationalists believed that they were going to um, inherit a new state, whatever new state or new government was going to be founded following home rule. And suddenly at the last minute, a new movement comes in and takes their place. Yeah, yeah. Let's move, let's move the story on though. We have this election, we have effectively a hung parliament. No one is able to form a government. So you've got a caretaker government, just like now in 2020. You know, the usual politicking is thrown into shade by the assassination of, of, of Kevin O'Wiggins. Uh, in July 1927. Yeah, see, this is the thing. As, as long as um, Fianna Fáil are not taking their seats, and when the Dáil first meet, the Fianna Fáil TDs go there, and they try and present the clerk of the Dáil with a legal opinion saying that they should be able to go in and sit down and take their seats without taking the oath. And then when, when this is refused by the clerk, they, they leave anyway. Things change, follow, as you say, following the assassination of Kevin O'Higgins who in some ways is probably the most powerful figure in coming and Ale and the government, even more so than Cosgrave. I think, I think that's a fair point. I mean, uh, you know, there was kind of a power struggle within the uh, pro-treaty ranks uh, towards the end of the civil war between O'Higgins and Richard Mulcahy, who was the Minister for Defence and, and head of the army. And O'Higgins came out on top and he got Mulcahy to resign. So O'Higgins is, is Minister for Home Affairs, but in modern terms, Minister for Justice, and he's at the forefront of a lot of what the, the coming and Ale government does good and bad. I mean, uh, some of the things he did, for example, was excluding women from juries. But uh, he's kind of the strong man of the government. He's a very, uh, he's a man who's very confident in his own uh, abilities, his own intellectual abilities. O'Higgins he's also is, a, a hate figure as well for Republicans, more yeah, so he, than a lot of the other ministers in coming and ale. That's right. And I mean, you know, this is mainly because of his kind of strident rhetoric. Like, so whereas Cosgrave, I don't think talked about or very rarely talked about things like the executions in the civil war O'Higgins would say things like um when he was taunted with the figure of 77 republican executions O'Higgins would say yes and 777 more if necessary you know he not only stood by them he appeared to kind of revel in them and O'Higgins also has this kind of contempt for what he calls irregularism which means you know anti-treaty republicanism but also kind of any any defiance of the state and he also oh where O'Higgins actually had been a member of the volunteers and had been a an activist during the first all the revolutionary dull, he appears to have this kind of contempt for actual republicanism by, by the 1920s. And he, he, he starts to say that he's quite happy to be part of the Commonwealth. So that probably contributes to this animus that anti-treaty Republicans have for him. That and the fact that as Minister for Home Affairs, he, he's continually enacting repressive legislation that allows them to be locked up w without trial and, and in theory executed, although nobody was after the Civil War. But it's not clear yet whether it was an authorised IRA operation, whether command sat down and, and ordered the three guys to, to, to shoot Kevin O'Higgins. 
I'm not too clear. Do you have any insight into that, into whether it was an IRA-approved operation or whether it was, as the story goes, three guys who just saw him on his way home from Mass and decided to shoot him? Yeah, that's. I don't know if it had ever been conclusively proved one way or the other, whether it was it came directly from the top of the IRA that he should be targeted and, and assassinated. Because, like as you say, he's walking home from Mass in the morning. This could have been done at any time, really. It does have a very opportunistic feel to it. I'd be interested to hear, I mean, if we get feedback on this, if anybody knows a little bit more about how this assassination could have happened. But the thing is, I mean, my kind of detailed research stops in about 1924 about the IRA and when Frank Aiken is chief of staff. And Aiken is very clear at that particular point that nobody will do any revenge killings unless they're authorized. He says he doesn't want people shooting ministers. He doesn't want people shooting members of the CID, the detective division, or anything like that without say-so. Because, you know, it's, it's bad for discipline, basically, is his point. It's almost unique, you know, yeah, in terms of settling scores after the yeah. Civil War. Yeah, I mean, uh, Mastumi is chief of staff at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Um, to be honest with you, I, 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 I kind of suspect it was authorised at some level. Because if it wasn't, I mean, um, it, it would be very anomalous for what the IRA was doing at the time. Yes, and that's the thing. We It does lead to a strong reaction from the government. So whatever they were hoping to achieve by the assassination, their response from the government was swift and draconian. That's right, yeah, a new public safety act. Um, so like the, the nature of emergency legislation in the Free State was that it was it was temporary, it had to be approved by the Dáil. I mean, a little bit like the emergency measures they have now in 2020 uh, during the pandemic. They, they will lapse and they have to be reapproved. But um, yeah, a new public safety act, there was a whole tranche of, of IRA uh, members rounded up and stuck in jail and a whole... A bunch of organizations banned and most significantly for the politics was that they passed the Electoral Amendment Act uh, in parallel, which said that you can correct me on this, Cahill, but I think it's uh, any TD who's elected who doesn't take their seat will lose their seat. Yeah, and they, they would have to sign an affidavit beforehand that they would take their seat if elected or they'd face yes. disqualification and there'd have to be a by-election for the seat. Yes, and of course, this involved taking the Oath of Allegiance, the, the very controversial Oath of Allegiance, where TD said that they would swear allegiance to the Constitution of the Free State and to King George and his descendants. True fidelity. True fidelity, that's Yeah, sorry, allegiance to the Free State Constitution and true fidelity to the monarch, yeah. being, being really accurate. But I mean, it, it may sound like nothing, but it's, it's a very hard pill for anti-treaty Republicans to swallow. Yeah, like as, as you, you know yourself from all your research, the Oath does form a major, major part of the opposition to the treaty among a large section of republicanism. We're not talking about the treaty in this podcast, but I mean, I think one thing to bear in mind is that at the time of the treaty negotiations, it's not just, you know, Republicans who were hung up on the oath. The British insist that there must be an oath if the treaty is going to go ahead. And when Collins talks about not having an oath in the Free State Constitution in 1922, you know, Churchill says, well, we'll, we'll, we'll reoccupy you militarily if you don't have an oath. So I, mean, I know there's a big deal to the British too. Fianna Fáil, when they're presented with this alternative of taking their seats or, or losing them, they go to the all and they refer to the oath as an empty formula. They sign the register and they take their seats. It does show De Valera's kind of amazing ability to, to wriggle out of any situation. What a sight to see. It must have been at that stage to see a full doll with these people who were fighting a civil war against each other just a few short years before are facing across the doll now looking at each other as, as government and opposition yeah and i mean i'm just gonna uh, put words in the mouth of, of the common and ale uh, government and, and tds i mean they would have seen these people as lawbreakers as criminals 
and, and they had just murdered one of their colleagues, Kevin O'Higgins, and now they were having the cheek to sit across from them in the doll. I mean, it must have been a bitter pill for them to, for them to swallow as well. Well, yeah, and we can look at the relationship between Fianna Fáil and the IRA at this stage. Like, not yeah, just Sinn Féin and the IRA, but Fianna Fáil and the IRA. Yeah, well, Sinn Féin is, not, is no longer really significant after, after this election, I would say, for a long time. And the IRA is much closer to Fianna Fáil than it is to Sinn Féin, weirdly enough, until the 1930s. Like, there's a great deal of crossover. A lot of Fianna Fáil come in there built on, on the back of IRA companies. You know, Frank Aiken had been the chief of staff of the IRA. He, he had resigned by then to join Fianna Fáil, but, like, very recently... There's a great crossover of members, you know, and even, you know, I'm not sure in the 27 election, but certainly in the 32 election, the IRA ordered their, their members to actually campaign for Fianna Fáil. So it's a really a very close relationship. And one of the things now with Fianna Fáil and Dáil, it makes the Cosgrave government very, very precarious. And the numbers are there now for the opposition, if they can unite to remove Cumann and Ale through a vote of no confidence and elect an alternative government from the parties that are already there. Yeah, talk about those numbers first, Colin. Well, if we look at the numbers there, among the Labour Party, the National League and Fianna Fáil, they have more than one vote than the combined pro-treaty support of um, Cumann and Ale and the Farmers Party and pro-Cosgrave independence. So the numbers are there to remove Cosgrave and remove Cumann and Ale. And the Labour Party proposed that Thomas Johnson, the Labour Party leader, would be uh, elected as president of the Executive Council, what they used to call the Taoiseach at the time, as they weren't going to use the term Prime Minister. For the support of Fianna Fáil for this, he agrees that uh, an immediate referendum on the oath would be held. This would be a coalition between the Labour Party and the National League, uh, William Redmond's party, with Fianna Fáil giving support to this new government, but not being part of the coalition. Very interesting, the Redmondites' reasons for, for stating that they were going to support a Labour Party-led government, and it's that they disapproved of the uh, the reintroduction of emergency legislation with the internment without trial, which is very interesting. Yeah, because all the way through, all the debates um, in the Dáil, all the discussion afterwards with the media and the press, uh, Redmond keeps hammering home this point that this is an incredibly repressive government. It's worse than the, the British during the War of Independence that they've uh, exceeded the constitution and their own powers. And it's all about the Public Safety Act. Yeah, and it's it's quite interesting because, you know, anachronistically, we, we probably think of the Redmondites as being, you know, most hostile to anti-treaty republicanism, but it wasn't so. No, it was really surprising, really surprising. So this sets up the motion of no confidence, and that comes on the 16th of August. So Thomas Johnson actually opens the debate. He proposes the motion of no confidence. And he talks about the uh, Public Safety Act as well. And the fact that there wasn't any other combination of parties available to lead the state. And now there is. So it's time for the Cosgrave government to stand aside and let uh, Labour and National League and Fianna Fáil take over. And it all comes down to the vote of, of one man, though, funny enough. Yes, it really becomes an issue then for the National League, and they only have eight TDs. And one of their TDs had already um, resigned. He wasn't going to support a, a motion that would remove Cosgrave and bring in a government support by Fianna Fáil. But among the rest of the TDs, Redmond's TDs, it appears that they all agreed that they were going to support this motion. The motion is put, the motion of no confidence is put, and it appears that it's been successful. And the Count Corla is asked then for a division on the vote. 
So that's where all the TDs troop through, either Ta or Neil. And after that, it turns out that the, um, the motion was tied at 71 votes apiece. And the convention has always been that if there's a, a tied vote in the Dáil or any legislature or parliament, really, that the chairperson or the Keon Corla or the speaker votes with the government. The speaker or the Keon Corla never votes against the government. So the Keon Corla votes with the government, the Cosgrave government coming to nail are saved and they immediately called it adjourned at all. The question is that how did this possibly happen? Because there's genuine uh, shock from the opposition because they had worked out that they would have a majority of one, that they would win the vote for it by 72 votes to 71. As at that point that they realised that one of the National League TDs is missing and hasn't voted in the division. And that's somebody called John Jinx. Who was this man, John Jinx, Carl? Who was this man whose uh, <laughs> name became quite famous? He's almost like the uh, Captain Boycott, you know, where the name becomes yeah. enters into general usage. But people are very, very few people are aware of the person behind it. Well, John Jinx, he's one of these um, traditional type of Irish politicians. Like he's a publican, an auctioneer, an ironmongerist, a funeral director from Sligo Town. And he's been a... He was a member of the Sligo Corporation for many years. He'd been a mayor on several occasions. Uh, he used to be a member of the Irish Parliamentary Party, going back a long time. And he'd been very involved in the, the war and recruitment in Sligo for the British Army. And he had a strong base of, of support among um, ex-servicemen in the county. He appears to have left it all and not voted without telling his party leader or any of his party um, party colleagues that he wasn't going to vote uh, for the motion. When this becomes apparent, Red, one of the things that Redmond says is he hopes that he hasn't been, Jinx is, is alive, that he's, he hasn't been taken seriously ill, that he'll get some explanation to what happened. He seems to be quite annoyed, and, uh, as you would imagine, because uh, he's had his chance of being a government minister and having a new Labour and uh, National League government just suddenly uh, thwarted by this sort of innocuous backbench TD of his. Uh, what, what had happened to Mr. Jinx? The media coverage was um, a cross between bewildered and especially media coverage internationally was this was some type of Irish farce and hilarious adiwackery going on. Now, when he, he got back to Sligo, uh, Jinx tried to put the best possible gloss on it. And he said that he'd never been uh, a supporter of anti-treatyites being in government. And he, he wasn't prepared to support anything that would bring radical republicanism near government and probably the end of the state. But this seemed to be um, in contradiction to what Redmond was saying that at the meeting of the National League party that day, that he hadn't voiced any sort of opposition to the National League's role in supporting the motion. He hadn't said he was going to vote against it or hadn't expressed any opposition at all. Now, in fairness um, to Jinx, I mean, given given his base, you know, within ex-servicemen and so on in, in Sligo, it could well have been that he really didn't want to let Eamon de Valera near the government. Oh, absolutely. And that was the thing. There was another National League TD called Vincent Rice, and he had resigned from the party on, the, on that point. Sorry, but there is another yeah. story about Mr. Jinx, though, isn't there? There is. The story that did the rounds was that he was brought over to the pub by Brian Cooper, uh, coming to nail and former Irish Unionist Party um, uh, MP and the editor of the Irish Times. 
and given many, many drinks. And when he was a bit worse for wear, he was carried down to the train station and stuck on a train. And off he was sent, not being able to vote in at all. And that's definitely the um, the story that's become most widely accepted. Yes, in the aftermath. And it's the story, like you said, that was reported in the American press and the British press and so on. That you know these drunken Irish and, and the way yeah. they carry on. Yeah. Which story would you uh, would you credit there? I probably credit that story. I'd say it's probably the most likely. Okay. Um, and, not, not, um, not not a principal defender of the constitution, after all, huh? Well, like as you said there, like you know, definitely on the base of his support and the type of political tradition he came from, it would seem unlikely that in within four years of the civil war that um and he's he's like you know he's he's not only a public representative he's like a, an owner of all these different businesses and stuff that um they would be too pleased with a combination of both the labor party which was viewed as a lot more radical than it was later to become and de Valera's party that a lot of his supporters would have been very happy with the new arrangement coming in and especially with the National League, it's a much smaller party in that. But it does lead to Redmond's point, and Redmond's query is like, why didn't he say this during the day if he was so opposed to it? Why yeah. did he let them think he was he was supporting them? It's an interesting point. But, okay, let's move on, though. So, like, Mr. Jinx missed the vote. There was a, a hung parliament with the Count Carla, as he said, swung in favour of the government, but it really meant there had to be another election, didn't it? Yes, and, you know, as tends to happen, you know, when, when conservative governments, there is a real crisis and it looks like they're going to go. Sometimes at the next election, they get a boost. It sort of focuses people's minds who would be supportive of the government. And same it goes for Cosgrave after uh, after this. Yeah, and I mean, for all the comedy of, you know, Jinx missing the vote because he was in the pub and stuff, you had a very substantial armed organization with a lot of weapons that was, you know, waiting in the wings. You had an opposition party which pledged no allegiance to the Constitution and the prospect of them getting into government. So did people did see it as a potentially another round of internal conflict. I mean, they would have seen this as quite a serious crisis at the time. If you look at what happened in 1932 and the talks among some sections of the guards and the army about possibly having a coup to prevent Fianna Fáil taking power after they win the 1932 election, how much stronger would those arguments have been among treatyite supporters for preventing a change of government? so close to the civil war yeah i mean i think you're, you've hit the nail on the head there i mean the likes of ono duffy for example uh, is very has a very hard line position on this and he's one of the the coup talkers in 1932 but like it's it's hard to see but i mean it, let, let's just say that it's very understandable that people would have wanted stability because they saw this as another potential if not civil war certainly another possible round of political violence yeah like even five years later at the start of the election coming the nails entire election literature and, and um, election strategy is to paint Fianna Fáil as Bolsheviks, Irish Bolsheviks, ready to take over. And if not Bolsheviks themselves, Kerenskys who are going to be swept aside by yeah. the Bolsheviks coming behind them. Yeah, and there's also, frankly, this this kind of perception of, like, you know, the irregulars as, like, the unwashed, the uncivilized people, the gunmen, you know, yeah. the, the wild men, as, as Awakens once called them, screaming in the keyholes. Uh, you know, all of these kind of stereotypes mount up in, in, in Cumin and Nail uh, language. Regardless, there is another election, and this time Cumin and Nail wins comfortably enough. Yeah, they gain another 15 seats. And Fianna Fáil also see an increase in their numbers as well, because now they're actually in the doll, but they go up 
another 30 in seats as well. But both Labour and the National League lose seats, with the National League almost wiped out. So you see the divisions are hardening along the Civil War lines. You know, not only with, as we're describing there, with like uh, Fianna Fáil and the anti-treaty it's being brought into, if if not government itself, but like, you know, supporting a government. We also potentially see the first time that a Labour Party Taoiseach, and, although it's yeah, used more the time. time. And the only time there never has been yeah, one. Yeah, there never may, has been one. Never, one yeah. May never be one now. But yeah, I mean, that's, so, I mean, I guess that's quite a good way to finish. I mean, what might have been had there been a, a Labour Taoiseach? Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Irish history could have been very, very different. Did Johnson have any particular programme for government that he was going to introduce? Had he been Taoiseach? Fianna Fáil basically steal Labour's clothes and they run in the, the 1930s as um, pretty much the Labour Party in terms of social housing, in terms of uh, workers' legislation and the shop acts, things that like that. A job safe, creation, safe um, sort of like the, the economic nationalism of building up native manufacturing in Ireland. There's an awful lot of areas where Fianna Fáil wins support and wins support for decades to come on um, yeah. issues such as housing and employment. Yeah, and this is always the argument that Fianna Fáilers will always kind of gleefully say that they were the real Labour Party, and even even will today, some of them. Yeah, that's true. And um, one of the reasons why, I suppose, that the Labour Party didn't become one of the two major parties in the 20th century is that Fianna Fáil were already in that lane for, you know, most of the 20th century. Yeah. And even I, when I they think... left that lane, they still retained the support. Uh, I think that that's, that's true. And I suppose we should finish. I mean, um, as we said, events have gotten in the way. But, I mean, uh, is there any lessons from in 1927 for now on the, the kind of caretaker government that we have today? Well, they definitely weren't dealing with the same circumstances in uh, 1927. And, like, as we were saying at the top of the programme, it doesn't matter really what happens in the next couple of weeks or a couple of months. There, there can't be another election. Now, the Keown Corla has said that the Dáil actually can't pass, the Oireachtas can't pass legislation because under the Constitution, we have to elect um, a new Shannon. And for people who are listening to this outside of Ireland, the, the lower house and the upper house, the, the Senate, aren't elected at the same time. The Shannon is elected a couple of weeks afterwards, new Shannon. So because we haven't had elections for the Shannon, one of the areas about the formation of the Shannon is that Seashock has to appoint 11 senators. And because we only have a caretaker, Taoiseach, and Varadkar is only continuing on in that capacity, Leo Varadkar, he doesn't have the power really to appoint these new 11 senators, and there's no provisions in the Constitution for having some other alternative. So we're sort of stuck at an impasse, really. Which is funny because, I mean, they're actually passing um, quite a lot of legislation, emergency legislation to, to do with health and restrictions um, and restrictions on movement uh, and potentially giving a lot of new powers to the Gardaí, which is in very different circumstances, but in some ways reminiscent of the public safety acts of, of the 1920s. It'd be interesting to get in the time machine and go two or three years into the future and be told how this all panned out. <laughs> I'd love to know. Yeah, I mean, like, without wanting to create any kind of, you know, discord at this this time, but I mean, like, it may be that there is a, an echo of the first so-called Public Safety Act in 1922 because that wasn't that they really didn't have any legal force because a little bit like now, I mean, the treaty hadn't come into effect yet. It was still the provisional government. There wasn't the Governor General, which performed the role of the Shannon today. So that the, you know, technically all the executions and internments in the Civil War were illegal. You know, there was just a resolution of the Dáil and they went ahead and did it. 
and and in a sense, I mean, you know, anything, any extra pairs that they pass today are, you know, because as you said of this strange situation, technically don't have the force of law, I suppose. Yeah, no, not to now. Having said that, uh, everyone respect the rules and and stay safe and stay home, right? Yeah, and if you're bored, if you're listening to our podcast for the first time, maybe check back in some of the old episodes on irishhistoryshow.ie. And we always appreciate it when people rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe now that people are stuck at home, please contact us. Twitter is a good way, at irishhistorypod. If you're enjoying the show or just any previous shows that you've enjoyed, please share them on social media and tell other people about them. There's also the articles on the Irish Story, John's website. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. Hopefully, if there's any problems here with the audio or getting this together, we're just completely new way that we're doing for the first time in terms of recording the show. So we'll have sorted them out by the next time. So we ask you to bear with us and uh, but hopefully you enjoyed it. So, John, we'll have to continue on this and we'll, we'll have to do them a lot more often now that we're, we can do them from home over the internet absolutely so we're gonna we're gonna stay together but stay apart exactly social distancing that's it all right okay thanks very much everybody